This episode, we're actually interviewing a psychologist around her own lived experience, around her own challenges and battles with mental health. And it is so refreshing to finally talk to a professional who's willing to say, hey, I'm not this rock solid thing that people just think are uh, unmovable emotionally. Uh, she is very much open about her own experiences with quite complex um, mental health issues relating to OCD and anxiety and a whole bunch of other stuff. And so I'm very proud, honored, excited, happy to welcome Sh- Sharon Draper to this podcast, um, a friend of mine and an amazing supporter of Heart on My Sleeve, an amazing human to hear from. And hopefully this provides everyone with a very, very felt sense that even those who look to have their shit together the most um, are just as, as normally flawed as the rest of us. Triggers in this episode relate to a little bit to do with OCD. Anyone who's currently experiencing um, strong compulsions, um, there's some triggering around religion, um, a, a minor reference to sexual abuse, a, uh, an exploration of negative experiences with psychologists. So if you've had that, um, just be careful when listening to this. But as always, go slow, go strong. One moment of the time. As always, go slow, go strong, one moment at a time. We're all on the journey. It is the first time we've had a psychologist here to talk to me and us about um, not trying to be the educator, actually saying hey, uh, psychologists have issues too, because so often we look at psychologists as godlike figures. Yeah. Um, and so, Sharon Draper, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Mitch. It's, um, it really is refreshing to, to give another perspective on this. Um, and uh, how long have you been in practice for? Ten years. Ten years. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So I guess you've seen it all. Yeah, I feel like I have. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty much just seeing one-on-one clients for ten years. Amazing. Yeah. And and so, like, what's it like being being the custodian or the the kind of keeper of such? deep dark secrets yeah it's an amazing experience to be able to hear people's stories um and i feel like it's a real privilege really to to hear people's um the goods and the bads of Mm. the experiences and i think um yeah i mean initially obviously it's taken me a long time to kind of grow with this role uh initially i would take a lot of it on board actually and get quite upset as well with Mm -hmm. some of the stories that I'd hear Um, but I had to learn a way to really manage it and recognize that the only way I'm really going to be able to help people is if I don't burn out as well and help myself too of course yeah 
And um, so ha- has it ever gotten too much? Uh, definitely, I've um, I've had moments of uh, feeling burnt out for sure. And uh, luckily, I've spoken to close people that I care about and care about me, and or mentors as well. And I've had to pull back on certain things or make sure I implement more self care type things. Because mm-hmm. sometimes, um, well, for me, I can get quite involved in my work. Like I love what I do, and um, it become it can become like the main thing in my life. Like I, I read psychology books. I just everything's psychology, so <laughs> I sometimes have to force myself to try and read like a novel that's like unrelated. But everything is psychology. <laughs> it, you sound a bit uh, a bit like me in that you're obsessive. Yeah, <laughs> you, <laughs> for sure. You, you try and you need to direct that missile in the right direction. Right? Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. So that it remains a gift, not a curse. Exactly. Yes. Um, <laughs> And so can you give us, can you think of a time where you can visibly remember, shit, I am, I'm really getting burnt out and I'm feeling overwhelmed as a psychologist. Mm. I don't know where to turn to. Yeah. um, Yes. I've had a few kind of moments in my life where if things aren't happening as well at my, like at home for me, I find that then my work can get really um, overwhelming as well so I feel like I have to have like all my other aspects of my life kind of fairly stable in order to be able to deal with the unstable mm-hmm. so there have been moments where uh, maybe you know with my relationship there's been some stuff they all been saddened by certain grief through family members and then really struggled to actually do my work so I've had to um and I work for myself too so you know I can kind of well now I do so I have to call it a mental health day sometimes I just feel like I can't see clients today. Mm. Um, that doesn't always happen, of course, because I try and make sure I prevent that from happening. But I've had to do that, definitely. Yeah. Where I felt so overwhelmed. So almost like in order for you to give so much of yourself to others, the the island has to be stable outside yes. of work, whether that be personal mm. relationships, personal finance, mm. physical health. And so when they're strong, you can be strong for others. Yes, I feel that way. I definitely feel like that. It it just kind of helps me to be able to then like let go and just really be present with the person. But if I'm struggling with my own stuff, that that can kind of get convoluted and get in the way as well sometimes. Have you ever been in an appointment with someone who's just absolutely opening up to you and you're so in your own head about your own stuff? Oh, well, I'll give you an example and um, I hope you don't judge me on this. I promise you I won't. <laughs> um, I should quit my job if I do. <laughs> true. So should you, actually. <laughs> true, true. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, there have been times where I've had my own personal stuff kind of get in the way and I've noticed that, like if a client's telling me something and so then I have to really be able to let that go and like just I have to park that, my own stuff, because the session is for them. Yeah. So I, I've luckily I've caught myself doing it. But I remember... I remember one time when I was a novice, highly anxious about how am I going to help people? What do I even know? You know, the fraud feeling. And um, so kind of very prepared and trying to control the environment, of course. And um, I remember a client talking. It was during my internship, actually, so before I actually qualified. But um, a client was telling me a really sad story. And... um, all I was thinking of was I need to not let her stop talking. Like she needs to just keep talking. So I just was thinking of all the things that I can still ask her. And I was like in my head thinking about what what else can I ask her? Like what open-ended question can I like throw back at her just so she keeps talking? Um, and she stopped talking and I had like, I had not heard what she'd said. And I felt 
awful and I had to ask her to repeat mm. what she said in a different way and just yeah. try to like save myself but but that actually was a really good learning experience too um, but that also comes with time and confidence you know comes with experience so I was just highly anxious about trying to control the situation so much that I actually lost the client yeah. I didn't even see the client anymore right. I was so worried about the silence between us yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> which is not good <laughs> and then eventually I'm sure you learned that the silence is where the medicine happens absolutely yeah. that was a struggle <laughs> to yeah. come to that understanding yeah 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 but, um, and and on our previous podcast, we've spoken to all the Dans, all the doctors, uh, and, you know, a, a lot of what they say, even in the way we communicate, i.e. the not wanting there to be silence and um, over-explaining in order to over-understand ourselves mm. can be signs of anxious, preoccupied attachment and, and the way that that's playing out in different relationships. And so I think... You know, there's our first example yeah. of um, of a therapist who absolutely has her own stuff going on and is sure. very aware of that. Yeah. Um, and I think anyone in a new job would be anxious. Yeah. <laughs> but but laddering on top of that, the pressure to be so fixed absolutely <laughs> is 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 yeah. a lot, right? Yeah, it's huge. Yeah. Yeah. And so. Um, so as as people can probably tell by now by your accent, you're from South Africa. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Like I know. Um, and uh, so what age did you move to Australia? I was 29, actually, when I moved. Oh, now we're going to work out my age. No, 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 we don't need to. We don't need to do that. We can, it was last year. Um, yeah. And did you move over as a psychologist? Yes. So okay. I got trained in South Africa and... Um, I always joke, you know, I don't know it's a third world country, but the training is really good, actually. Because yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we were exposed to so many different things, like CBT as well as psychodynamic and all the others, like family systems, gestalt. Yeah. So I feel like I got a really, like a wealth of knowledge of various kinds of therapies in order to help all kinds of people. Mm. Yeah. Did you, I mean, Africa is renowned as a, as a continent of in- extreme unthinkable trauma. Yeah. Um, did you notice that the the client, uh, or I don't want to call them clients in this podcast, just the people yeah. who, who were coming and having a chat, yeah. um, were more extreme in their in their kind of traumatic experiences than Australia? Uh, well, it's hard to say because I was still quite new to psychology when I was in in um, South Africa, so I did a lot of teaching and things like that as well. But the clients that I did, I, I, to be honest, I, there were more traumatic stories. But coming here, there are traumatic stories. For sure. I mean, so I wouldn't necessarily. I think there's just more of them in South Africa, definitely. Okay. Yeah. And have, has there ever been an instance in either country where? Um, someone has told you something that is incredibly triggering for you where it either in the moment or afterwards yeah. has left you in the red zone? Yes, absolutely. Can you give me an example? Um, uh, well, in the one, the one case, it was more about an emotional attachment I had with somebody back home and the way uh, she'd passed away and she was like my... She was like a very close family member, kind of like another mother to me. And I had a client talk about her sister and the sister just reminded me so much of this person that I had lost and the way like I said the way it ended was the way she passed away was very sad and um, traumatic for me as well and um, 
yeah, so just hearing this person talk, it just took me back to that place. Mm. And I was also again quite early on in my career and I really felt all the feels and I had to just try and calm myself just so that I could still stay focused on the person's story. But it was quite triggering. I mean, I've cried with a client before as wow. well. Well, not cried. <laughs> they haven't Good. had to pass me the tissues, but like I definitely got, got, you know, welled up and tearful. I've had that maybe probably two or three times throughout my career. and And they were grateful oh my god yeah for me showing because it was extremely sad and it really touched me but it's so cool because really we go to therapy or in our life in general where we're wanting to be seen more than anything and we're wanting to know that our internal world affects other people's internal world yeah like that's the difference between um i guess like humans and animals in a a lot of regard that we're conscious Mm -hmm. enough to say that um, it, it's back to that age-old thing, which is why can't I talk to my cat? Mm. You know, if if all we're trying to do is to be, you know, heard, yeah. then why can't I pull up yes. a kettle of, you know, a kettle or, or a cat or a wall and talk to it? And, yeah. you know, we, we did some research on this and essentially it's because unless the thing that you're confiding in shows change post-ingestion of your story mm. there's no healing agent or benefit to the so, so there's yeah. a level of comprehension and digestion and change that has to happen on the receiver's end mm. in order for us to feel validated and and psychologically things change mm. and so you crying i don't think is in any in any way negligent or being over involved but just showing a raw honest yeah validating hey this really touches me and i'm witnessing you in your pain Absolutely. without getting lost in it a hundred percent yeah so that's yeah. beautiful yeah um and uh and so so you move from south africa back to uh well firstly to australia and yeah. you uh went straight into private practice um i was actually sponsored uh, to work here so um a, a couple they happened to be south africans as well i didn't know them but they had their own practice um, in Redfern and so I started working there because I had to get sponsored in order to be able to actually legally live here and work mm-hmm. so I was there I was there for five years I only needed to be there for I think three for the visa but I stayed for five years that was an experience that I will you know never regret that was hard though the struggle the people that I'd see the the trauma in Redfern was huge I'll bet um, so, but but it was an amazing, amazing experience. Um, and now I'm in private practice, just with my own, because I've always wanted to just kind of work, you know, with in my own space. And and do you see a therapist yourself? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Um, I, what was really great about our training in um, South Africa, the master's training during, so we had one year of theory and one year of internships. So it's a little bit different here, but through that one year of internship, um, it was. I want to say encouraged, but it kind of felt compulsory <laughs> to, yeah. to see a therapist. And mm. they provided somebody for us. And um, that was, it was a great introduction for us. And it was an amazing experience. And I think that just sort of was the, the platform for me to then start seeing therapists for myself too. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. Um, and can you can you take us back into some of your own personal mental health story? Yeah. Like, wh- where did that start for you? Um, I th- well, looking back, I've heard stories. My mum's told me some interesting stories. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely was um, quite a timid, shy, anxious child. Um, I, 
I have an older sister and she's 10 years older, so I was kind of like an only child, but also not. And then also having two mothers who are quite anxious themselves. <laughs> so it was, I'm not blaming them at all, but it was definitely like that influence. As in your sister's mum? My mum and my sister. Were, my oh, sister's 10 years older, so, so she was kind of like, like a mum. Like okay, yeah, she it. was quite bossy. <laughs> um, but we love her. Yes, yeah. yeah, she's my best friend, actually. Yeah, yeah. Um, so... So apparently I used to cry a lot every time my mum would drop me off at daycare. Like, okay. you know, often like before the year or something. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, like I said, very, like separation anxiety for sure. I used to force her to come with me to parties and things and she was forced to make new friends, <laughs> thanks yeah, to yeah. me. I think it's a, you know, it's a gift. Yeah. <laughs> but um, the, the other stuff around that, uh, um, it's interesting that we talk about South Africa because I think, you know, you, you're exposed to a lot of things. Here, you hear a lot about a lot of stuff. Well, here you'll hear about one bad thing, and you like it. It makes the front page news. There, you do get complacent, you know. And um, but 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 you're exposed to it. It's just a new that you hear about all these traumatic things. So, interestingly, like from a very young age, my mum said I was like five or six. I used to be worried about everyone and everything. So worried about how people would perceive me. Um, fear of rejection of course and um, but especially like worried about the the world I don't know how I knew stuff and she said I don't know like how does she know this stuff like maybe I was watching the news secretly I don't know but I hope not <laughs> but um I remember saying to her like I'm really worried about blah blah or something that was happening in the world and she sat me down and she said the only thing you should really worry about is who you're playing at like with at school tomorrow mm. you know so I think I've felt like I've always been quite um a sensitive aware child just from the start <clears throat> And then I, that manifested in uh, trying to control my environment. So OCD developed, um, a lot of washing hands and checking doc, um, locks and doors and things. But then again, living in South Africa, you have to. If you leave your front door open, yeah. I mean, somebody could walk in. People try and walk in even when it's locked. So do you know what I mean? So the, I think just that culture of that, that fear based is just I was in that. Um, yeah, so, and then go, I created, like, rules for myself as well to try and, I think, contain my anxiety, as you do. And it's quite a funny story. Um, I remember, I think I was about six or seven, because I remember this. Um, I created this rule that if I if I inhaled, like, just breathed in, I had to be looking at, like, a family member, because that was, like, good. But if I exhaled on them, I was giving them some bad stuff. <laughs> so... <laughs> But if I exhaled on a stranger, that's fine. So I'd have to like look at my mum and be like, and then like look at someone else and like exhale. So this controlled breathing at like six, oh my goodness, there's so many other things to worry about. But that was something that I really like, I don't know, in a way it kind of helped me cope in some ways, but it was, I was just making my life quite difficult. Mm. And especially when I went to school, I remember like for the first maybe like half a second, my mum drops me off so like my breathing in person is no longer there yeah, <laughs> so yeah. I kind of had my to breathing in anchor yes yeah. I kind of had to adapt my rule very quickly and I wasn't prepared to inhale looking at a stranger because that just was like strangers are, aren't good or strangers yeah, are yeah, scary yeah. um so I quickly made like okay well neutral uh, the sky the sky okay it's okay so I can breathe in while I look at the sky so I'd have to like make sure that I sat next to a window in class just wow. so that I could be aware of breathing in looking at the sky I, I don't know how long that lasted for I don't think it lasted for very long but I definitely remember that mm. and then um interestingly my sister um had, was going to a chiropractor and I had to wait with her and the chiropractor was doing something with her manipulating a spine or whatever and then looked at me and said to my mom like she's breathing weirdly <laughs> 
pointed at me. And then they like investigated and I used to hold my breath a lot, just mm. try and like keep everything in. So, um, and I've actually, the breathing part is something that's been really important for me. I struggle breathing, running, breathing's been a big thing. So deep breathing has been something that's really been a struggle for me, but I've had to, had to learn to, wow. to um, implement. Yeah. It's, um, thank you for sharing that, yeah, by the sure. way. And I really, I relate to that on so many levels. Um, for me, my first signs, I think OCD starts as superstition on steroids and then mm. becomes so much more. And for me, if I, if I didn't find a blue patch in the sky, blink a certain amount of times whilst inhaling, saying the word God, sure. um, I thought that I was possessed by the devil oh, wow. and that my mum was going to disown me and my dad hated me. And yeah. so you can imagine I'm outside skating with two of my mates going like this saying God. They're like, hey, dude, what the fuck are you doing? <laughs> um, and at that age, I was like, I don't know. And then, you know, that triggered everything for me, which is like, what the fuck am I doing? What is mm. wrong with me? Am I possessed? Possessed mm. people would do something like that. And so then it perpetuates itself. Oh, my goodness, yes. Uh, and then it for, it takes lots of other different forms because once you, yes. you know, look at that, then... And so um, I really resonate with that. And what I find really refreshing is that this is now coming from the mouth of a psychotherapist. Yeah, yeah. And it's, it, I think that that story, whether or not it's OCD or a different form... Almost every single practicing psychologist today would have their version of that. Yeah. yeah. Um, how do you how how do you cope with like breathing now? Because obviously we get over things, and mm. there's still some some fossils around. Yeah. Um, yes. And so, are, are you coping well with that today? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. Good. Definitely. Um, I've ha- I had to let let that go. I had to let that yeah. go, yeah. Um, and be able to. I, I still find myself holding my breath sometimes, though. Yep. So it's like, as you say, like it's still there sometimes and sometimes have to really focus on taking a deep breath. Um, but other than that, it's it's fine now. I don't have any yeah. rules about that. The other, the other rules. <laughs> there are other rules. I still wash my hands and check locks. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, we all do and, and even some of us do in excess so long as we can manage it and stay healthy. Exactly, um, yeah. I think be as weird as you possibly can be before it gets painful. (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) Um, And uh, okay. And, and so, so there's kind of a theme you're more, I guess, experiencing anxiety and and different forms of that probably more than depression or or anything else. And, and a lot of it stems from wanting to control Mm -hmm. your environment. Um, And uh, how has your family ecosystem been? How's the mental health? been in your family um well so I've, I've got like some very very supportive parents they're wonderful parents strong people who are very caring and empathic um but <laughs> having said that they're also of an, a generation that doesn't uh own well they don't realize so um i've already diagnosed everyone <laughs> yeah of as you do as you're no studying less. yeah, yeah. <laughs> everyone um of my family members um so yeah. but but the, um i think it's really hard for them because it's not well for, for my dad for example um he's also an accountant <laughs> so he's just very you know no two plus two is four and that's yeah. it yeah like what i'm doing is like very wishy-washy kind of thing i know he's proud but there is that kind of feeling um but so like he won't i, I don't think he'd he'd even realize what he's like if he's got anxiety you know he wouldn't even realize or wouldn't even know that it is that same with my mum and I think um 
Yeah, I mean, they're both high functioning, which is fine. There hasn't been any other kind of things there. But mm-hmm. definitely anxieties. I mean, I can I can definitely map it within my family, my sister as well, for sure. But she's aware of it and does her own things to try and help herself too. Okay. Yeah. And your sister is um, someone who's very close to you. Yes. Yep. And um, she forced me to move to Sydney. Actually. She forced me. <laughs> yeah. Thank goodness. Kinda. Thank goodness. <laughs> yeah. Um, and her so she's also experienced anxiety right yes yeah and has she had anything in her life that's provoked that yeah well so within my family like the significant thing that's really part of my story and my family's story is uh, child sexual abuse okay which is um uh, it was just like the rippling effect of that you know it affected every single one of us even mm-hmm. though not always directly but um, in an indirect way so there, there is that it's not my story to tell so I won't go into the, sure. the depths of it but definitely um, I think that's impacted my family and my whole my unit my family unit um, just in our dynamic um, when it came out um, when, when it was you know we were kind of realized what was happening or what was told um i was probably about seven or eight so since then i feel like my relationship with my parents changed a little bit my mum was sad a lot Mm. and i didn't know why Mm. and then my dad um yeah there's been some stuff there i think he's had to struggle with how does he how does he just be a dad (laughs) when this has happened um especially with girls you know daughters so yeah, it's a huge, huge impact that's happened with us. Also, our extended family is quite Christian and um, weren't really willing to look at the 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 impact of it and the perpetrator and all that sort of stuff. So it was silenced. So it really was like a pressure cooker a little bit in our immediate family because didn't get any support from anyone else. And and that actually, to be honest, I mean, that's in a way um, it's help me think about psychology and Mm. um, I try to make it into something where well you know I couldn't have done anything to help the situation as a child but I could definitely do that as a career and as a an adult I can help more people um, because I'm aware of how impactful things like that are so thank you for sharing that that's a um a big thing and I want to give that the space that it deserves um and I can feel the impact on the ecosystem and all the members just by listening to you and, of course, and as it should, Mm. for a child to feel it's both the act that is impactful Mm. and it's the lack of protection that also gets you, right? It's Okay, that happened, but Mm. why wasn't I protected from that? Um, And so it's both the, the... the pre the pre-event questioning the event questioning yes. and then the post event response questioning Absolutely. so you kind of got three work streams in your head which is all confusing your identity your sense of the world your sense of self and so Absolutely. the trauma creates kind of like an anchor point in your life that that you need to now rally around integrate mm. you know work through and um it sounds like that's the case for you and your extended family yeah um yeah. And it's interesting you mentioned – so I, I think you would agree that all mental health is a mix of genetics and environmental trauma. Yes. Yeah. Um, and so they kind of feed one another. But seven, seven to eight years old mm. seems to be this number that mm. comes up for me and so many people I talk to that 
if something something big happens between kind of five to ten, but the eye of the storm being seven to eight, that yeah. can have yeah. quite long-lasting effects. Yeah. Do you know from any research or textbooks why that is? Yes, <laughs> yes. So um, that age in particular, you're very egocentric. Mm. So meaning that anything that really happens around you, you internalise that as if you're the one who caused it. So um, yes. you see everything. If a divorce happened, even if your dog died at that age, you know, any kind of trauma in that way, um, it's very hard for that age or that person to be able to see it as something external from themselves and of course we always kind of blame ourselves so I think that's definitely so that kind of goes back to and slight technical geek out here I don't don't want this to get technical but um there was a concept we learned about in uni called like almost like omnipotence where you haven't developed that the world is separate from me fully yet you have some instance of separation from self from mother from Mm. blah 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 but um I think because you still behave in a certain way and the world responds to you because you're a child you're like oh okay my action changes the world so therefore I am the world yes (laughs) um (laughs) and and so the good part about that is it creates a sense of Safety, because you're like, okay, I got control. Mm-hmm. But when the world either doesn't react to you, doesn't react to you favorably, yeah. um, or uh, something happens that feels out of your control, that creates massive tension. And I guess mm-hmm. you have nowhere else to make sense of it. And mm-hmm. ultimately, making sense is our primary defense and our primary psychological need. Yes. So we make sense by building stories that aren't true. Absolutely. In order to feel in control, and that's where build, uh, guilt, blame, shame, yeah. all the big ones can yes. start to be. The seed is planted. Absolutely. Um, so that makes sense. Thank you for, mm. for for clarifying that. I also want to pick up on like religion is something that is again present for me. Um, present for a lot of people's stories, particularly around that age. And mm. the what I think religion can do when used in excess, and by the way, this isn't me shitting on religion. I think religion plays a good role. Well, mm. I think belief in a higher power plays an essential role yes. in healthy human development. Absolutely. Something bigger than you, and mm. countless studies have proven that's true. Religion, though, is the dogmatic practice yeah. or theoretical ideologies of spiritual things Mm. that create um rigidity yeah and i think that's the word i want to pick up on which is rigidity when when you spoke about the family not talking about it that's a closed system and we know that closed family systems cause lots of issues you Mm. know silencing denial Mm. all that stuff Mm. as opposed to airing it out healthy sharing yeah um and so, so what do we do with religion playing such a big role like that? Uh, well, in our case, I mean, we completely became silos, you know, like it was just my parents, my sister and I against the world kind of thing, unfortunately. Mm. Um, something just to add to that, the response that we got was it's a boy thing. It's just a boy thing, though. Okay. So that was that very dismissive. Um, what I did want to just say that kind of touches on what you're saying, even though I don't have the answer necessarily for how do we cope with that, is with religion specifically, Um with with my parents kind of being aware of it, the way they handled the situation was amazing. And that just changed things for all of us as well because they, um, they did not once not believe it. So I think that really helped the system too. Even though we were a closed system, we were a very strong system, which um, I'm very thankful for. That's awesome. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and uh, it's, the reason I paused just then is 
and this isn't something to be concerned about. This is about me being real on the podcast. You saying that then has actually just triggered something oh, for me. Okay. Um, not a bad thing, but something that hasn't I haven't thought about for a very long time. Mm. And so it's been interesting to observe my thoughts as you've been talking. Yeah. And um, because a lot of the OCD I've been through has been kind of um, sexual contamination. So like mm. being a being guilty of having bad thoughts, bad mm. actions and blah, blah, blah. And, mm. um, I was always most fearful of um, being a sexual predator. That was mm. like as a six, seven, eight-year-old, mm. having those thoughts when you haven't even hit puberty isn't a good thing sure. <laughs> because there's nothing really driving that. Yes. Um, and so, yeah, I'm, I feel... I feel um, very sorry for, for mm. anyone who's who's gone through that, and mm. um, and likewise anyone who's been through OCD, because uh, it's the type of it's the type of thing that never really lets you divorce yourself from the story, because you constantly yeah. believe you're the lead character or the perpetrator or whatever. Yes. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, interesting, uh, interesting things. Can, can I just add to that? It's just also the story that you keep telling yourself, like those negative stories. Like I've spoken to a lot of people, friends, who've said, oh, like, if, if you only knew what I was thinking, like you just wouldn't be my friend anymore, or mm. things like that. Because we do, we start believing that those thoughts are us. Um, I, I've had lots of clients, yeah, like having these really quite traumatic and aggressive type thinking which they would never do anything in real life like they wouldn't but because they've got that thought they think they're bad yeah. and then that shame develops and oh it's yeah just, yeah yeah it's a yeah, bad cycle yeah, right? yeah yeah um uh you said that you're you've kind of gone into therapy as a way what i what i took from it was to um kind of be there for your child self kind of like younger Sharon like you might not have been protected to the level that you wanted you might not have found the refuge in anyone that you wanted you might mm. not have been able to get that stable attachment mm. so it's almost as if adult Sharon is now caring for young Sharon through caring for other people is that a correct read um I think to a point but the most important thing was more the person who it got like had happened to mm. I definitely felt like um, I wanted to help other people because the person that was actually directly affected wasn't helped got it, got it. so it's more like in a way of um, um, not really like atonement but like in a way of just um, being able to help people because I wasn't able to help her, her, her or yeah. Wh- whoever that is and we yeah. don't need to get into who that was yeah um, yeah yeah okay that makes sense mm. and I think it's kind of like a a um, a version of that because yeah. god i know that yeah. m- you know a lot of what i do for heart on my sleeve is like wanting to show my younger self that i can make good and that things yeah. are gonna be okay yes, and don't give back yeah and, yeah and atonement yeah for mm-hmm. sure mm-hmm. part of this is like <laughs> there's been a narrative in my life like am i a bad person yeah i've worked through that and i've let most of it go but there's of course a bedrock of that and so part of me talking on this podcast right now is a guilt of me trying to get rid of a guilt that i'm a bad person so go do lots of good shit for a lot of people you know and hopefully it'll pay off absolutely um so i'm hedging my bets in case i am a bad person you know um trying to accrue as many good brownie points as i can Uh, but but yeah no it's it's funny how how like the platform is there always we just learn to resurface it and somewhat excavate it yeah yeah yeah. um 
Something else that I definitely wanted to kind of add that influenced me becoming a therapist was also my sister. I kind of, I used to jokingly blame her, but I think it's more, (laughs) um, I'm grateful for her. Um, She'd, because she was 10 years older, she'd come in like after going out on a date or something at at 16, she'd be like, oh, I don't know if I like this guy. What do you think? And I was like six. (laughs) Mm. And so I'd be like reflecting with her. Okay, well, let's just look at this. (laughs) So I feel like she's, she made me into a therapist from really young. I feel like I've been counseling people since I was like six years old. (laughs) Yeah, I think you have. (laughs) Yeah, definitely. It's funny because it, it, uh, what you were saying before being a six year old, being like, like way too dialed into everything. Yeah. Um, that might seem strange to you and it seems strange to me for a very long time because I was exactly the same and yeah. I, I think I've spoken about this book on the podcast before but Your Rainforest Mind by Paula Probar yeah. I was like oh there are other people like this who um, yeah just kids who like feel empathy for trees yeah. and you know <laughs> that they, they will see like a dog limping and they won't get, be able to get to sleep at night because of that just you know an empath doesn't even cut it because yeah. um, it's not just necessarily you're a great person and feel lots of things for people and you should be mm. applauded but it's that you're hyper aware hyper vigilant mm. mm. and that hyper vigilance has a bonus of probably causing intelligence or emotional intelligence mm. but it can also be incredibly damaging because you're like how do i tone down this antenna of course because <laughs> the antenna is way <laughs> too loud yeah yeah and it's picking up frequencies that it probably shouldn't for <laughs> no. a six seven eight year nine ten whatever no. year old no um ladder onto that an environment which incubates and strengthens that antenna through conversations with your sister and conversations with your parents and whatever happening where you know living in South Africa where it's unsafe where you physically have to become smarter quicker faster whatever Mm. uh it's this perfect breeding ground for anxiety right (laughs) and it's that thing which is like you sometimes hate the anxiety but it's like oh dude thanks so much for like keeping me sane keeping me alive keeping me fitting in and um Mm. and so yeah whoever holds the narrative of like I'm broken I'm not good enough I would encourage you to flip around and say, well, it's here for a reason, so why? And Mm. all we're trying to do is cut out the excess. I always talk about this. We're cutting out the excess. It's not about going from 98 to zero, you know, in terms of like mental illness to healthiness. It's going from 98 to 95 because it's the 3% that's doing the damage. Absolutely, 100%. And I'm sure you've seen that across all your clients. We're just trying to squeeze in the the end frequencies. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Unfortunately, I I find a lot of people are are kind of very black and white thinking, so I don't want anxiety anymore. You're like, I can't help you with that. Yeah, it's impossible. (laughs) It's impossible. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so um, yeah, there's those extreme ways of thinking, but that's it. It's trying to find that that healthy balance. Yeah. The same like I was saying earlier with my OCD, I haven't done any work on it because it doesn't impact my functioning. Right. I, I mean, maybe my partner will say differently. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> I think he's quite gets frustrated. Yeah. <laughs> it is locked. Hey, it is locked. Oh. <laughs> but um, but and, and I know like at certain times when I'm more stressed, it definitely comes up definitely. even more. But uh, but I've managed it, and so I'd, and I don't think of it as a bad thing anymore. It's just something that is there. Just is. Yeah. yeah. Just is. Mm. Yeah. So many cool things that <laughs> I've I've already just learnt and want to reflect on. Um, so. What's uh, something that I know lots of people are curious about around like, do therapists 
because lots of us have bad experience with therapists, yeah. like normal people. Yes. Uh, do therapists have bad experience with therapists? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so you know what it's like to walk into an office and be like, shit, I don't think they got me. And like, where do I go if yeah. they don't catch me, right? Yeah. yeah. To be fair, I've spoken to a few um, therapists who see therapists or um, have a new client who happens to be a therapist. And there's a lot of anxiety for that therapist mm. that is going to be the therapist role. The treater, yeah. Yes, it's like, oh, they know a lot more. And am I going to be good enough for them so there's that pressure but then also from a therapeutic point of view or from, like as a therapist who wants to be the client um, you kind of also know what what has worked for you or what you want out of it more more what you want out of it um, and therefore I think there's a lot of expectation too but having said that yes uh, um, I've been in that experience where it's interesting so I have one person in particular um, well I've had quite a few so, somewhere they just kept talking about themselves a lot and I'll mm. be like I just I just want to <laughs> I just want to tell my story <laughs> like mm. I listen to so many people's stories this just is for me now you yeah, know and like so can you not talk totally. about your stuff yeah and so and that's interesting I don't know if the boundaries were blurred because she knew I was a therapist I'm not sure I'm like oh, like I need to just keep that healthy boundary there I'm not your therapist you're my therapist yeah you know? <laughs> I'm paying you girl. <laughs> yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and then another one I remember um it's it's weird like I can't really fault her she seemed really lovely and she is lovely and I'm sure she'd be very good for a lot of people um I think the one thing she took a lot of notes and so her head was down a lot mm. and I take notes during sessions too but I write while I still look at the clients <laughs> and my handwriting's terrible because yeah. of that I can't see where I'm writing but it's just a like a note or whatever it is but I think I felt really disengaged and I thought my goodness like <laughs> I can't I can't continue to yeah. see you even though she was lovely it wasn't like she didn't say anything bad or anything like that but I just there was no connect because she didn't let me it's it's the note taking one is a really interesting one because like we obviously know why it's there mm. it's so that they can think about questions later or something might trigger yeah, I, mean, yeah. I fucking I've used yeah. that word too many times something might spark <laughs> yeah. um in their head and uh they also want to put notes in the file so there's some coherence of tracking sessions. So, sure, all makes sense. But I know that when I start talking and someone starts writing, mm. two things happen. A, you break the connection. Yep. And B, you start creating stories in your head about what they're writing Absolutely. down. These guys are free. Yeah. You know, oh, <laughs> yeah. my God, I've never yeah. heard this before. Yeah. Yeah. Send to mental asylum, oh, yeah. you know, all those stuff. <laughs> Especially um, if they circle things yeah. and underline <laughs> Oh, as soon as you see the circle, it's like, I'm out. You know, I'm, I'm fucking yeah. leaving straight away. Circle means you're done. Yeah. No, I'm kidding. Um, uh, so, and it's interesting because people can't see. Um, we're on a podcast, obviously, but I am and writing little things down as we talk. Mm. And I, I kind of write either one, one word or one mm. letter down. And I'm conscious trying to maintain the engagement with you because I am actively listening yeah. while still wanting to pick up on certain things and unpack yeah. it. And mm-hmm. so I'm kind of like your role right now because yeah. I'm, yeah. I'm asking questions, <laughs> I'm writing stuff down, and I can I can empathize with psychologists who are trying to stay present but also mm. do a bunch of crunching in the background. Mm. And I don't think there is a solution other than keeping a good balance, right? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. I think, I mean, the most important thing I believe in any therapeutic space is the relationship. hundred percent. The connection that yeah, you have. 100%. And that's why, like, that is my focus. It's not so much, oh, how am I going to help them or what? It's more just, I'm just going to be present for this person yeah. and hold that space for them. And I think... 
uh, also to be fair like I, I probably only started really feeling confident in my role like four years ago mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> you know which is quite a long time of not really feeling confident and not overly confident I don't go into it thinking I know how I'm going to help people yeah and that's why with that there's just a fine balance of knowing your theory or knowing what's important to be able to connect with somebody but someone but also not not knowing not knowing necessarily how you're going to, mm. um, and you take the lead from the client because the client is their own, their own ex, you know, you're your own expert. Yeah, I never think of myself as an expert, but yeah, but that's just um, important because the relationship is so important. Yeah, I think anyone, any, even if you're a uh, a tradesman or a football player, you probably don't feel fully confident until yeah. you've done close to ten thousand hours in yeah. something, or you know, whatever six years is is a good proxy yeah um and but yet what's interesting is you're you're expected to be the expert as soon as you get spat out of uni yes um not just socially but academically as in Mm. you're allowed to go see someone the moment you finish your degree you do your one year um placement yeah even on placement you're seeing people one-on-one yeah 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 and I, I spoke to a guy the other day at a conference and I was like hey dude what was the you know you kind of handed in your final assignment and then a few weeks and months later you're in an office and your first person walks through the door and sits in front of you yeah what next yeah exactly and he's like you just take a deep breath swallow and go oh shit I hope I don't screw this up and I'm like mm. you know Sure, everyone has to sink or swim, right? But what are we doing as a system to either, you know, ridiculously reduce prices on people who have less than five years experience or, um, you know, rebate it through government so they can give all pro bono or um, have every second session with three people in the room? I don't have an answer to it, but, I mean, so many... No one can be sure of how many years someone's had. Yeah. And so what do you do? Oh, exactly, exactly. But uh, do you know what I was just thinking? My, my godfather used to always joke. He's like, you train for all this time and then you go and just practice. Like, you just it's just a practice. Yeah. <laughs> and that's what practice. it is. It's practice. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, that you gain experience. Yeah. And, yeah. and I also find it interesting that, like, in a psychology degree, a lot of it is around statistics. It's around studying treatment frameworks in like week by week, you know, yes. on week seven, these are the modules you do. But yes. as we know, <laughs> healing is very rarely that linear, that scientific, yeah. that robotic. And mm. uh, and so a lot of psychology degree students get spat out with very little human or counselling experience. Yes. And, and so, you know, there's a lot to be said for... You know, psychologists as an industry, highly regulated, you mm. know, you have to be approved, mm. have to have supervision, all that stuff. But counsellors are also good in their own right. Yes, mm. they're unregulated, which means there's a higher percentage of people who aren't effective or phonies or whatever. Mm. And so you've got to be super careful. But, but counsellors sometimes are the people who have come through it with their own lived experience, want to give back can't either afford the time or the money to go to uni to do the official psychology degree but can be really really helpful and I can speak firsthand that counsellors have helped me lots Mm, mm, absolutely yeah so I think it's just a time and place thing right yeah yeah Yeah. well and also what I was thinking um because I find a lot of people I get a lot of clients who've already seen therapists before me and um they people don't really know what a therapist is trained in or what that even means cbt gets thrown around and you're like i don't know what (laughs) What cbt is or even cognitive behavioral therapy like 
but what does that mean actually? Right, you know? right. Um, so uh, there are so many different kinds of ways, frameworks that people use. And you only, you know, I'm, I'm really interested in attachment theory and holding space and person-centered and all about that relationship. But not everyone focuses on that. And mm. they might be more um, behavioral driven. And so, you know, give you homework to do and you've got to do that. And that might not be what the person's actually wanting, but you have no idea what you're wanting, really. Mm. Um, so you just go through these experiences of seeing many clients, uh, seeing many therapists. And I think it's quite, I find it quite sad. I'm really glad that people are still trying to find someone, even if they've had a bad experience. But um, I'm getting a lot of clients who, I'm their third psychologist. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, that's a very, very common common problem. Yeah. How do you find the right help? Yeah. And you and I were speaking about this before we started recording around how it's not necessarily people, there's no directories because there are, and it's not necessarily there's no places to connect because there are great online video tools. I think the part we need to get better at is like chemistry matching. Yeah. Um, whether it's through rating and reviewing therapists or through um, smarter algorithms and, mm. you know, we've got a bunch of ideas around that, but the the connection element, getting people to the right people quicker. Yeah, yeah. Because who might be wrong for you might be right for someone else. Yeah. Uh, and mm. I, I've been exactly in those shoes. It took me so many people mm. before I was like, oh, my God, finally mm. someone who gets it right. Yeah. Um, and so it's good to hear from a therapist that it's not abnormal for even a therapist to, <laughs> to go through a few before being like, wow, yep. let alone, you know, you're the people that come to chat to you, yeah. you are often yeah. not the first, first person they've seen. And, and that can be very disenfranchising and, and they can lose a lot of spark from that process. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I'm also then very aware of, oh, I wonder what the other therapist like did, did, did wrong or yeah. like make sure that I don't do that. And uh, I don't overthink it anymore. Yeah. I know what's important is the relationship. And as long as they feel safe and heard and seen, then 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 they, they can open up and, and learn. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, yeah. cool. And so, um, from your own lived experience and from your therapeutic experience, what are some things that you'd want people listening to this to know? From my own personal and work experience? Um, I mean, I think, I think the important thing would be is to uh, just give things a go. Like I find so many people are so hesitant to try things out of based out of fear, and that's whether you know. I'm sorry, whether that's like finding a therapist or just trying to tweak some sort of change in their life. Mm. Um, I find a lot of people. One of the biggest themes that I find in my practice is a lot of people say, oh, "I'm not confident enough. When I'm more confident, I'll do that." Or, "I'm too anxious." Uh, so when I'm less anxious, or when I'm not anxious, I'll do that thing. And it's just you're going to be waiting forever if you don't just try something mm. and allow yourself to get into just like a moderate level of discomfort. It, it, that's the only way that you're really going to make positive change is by allowing yourself to feel that slight discomfort or moderate level. Because um, if you stay in that safe space and that comfort space, there's that incongruence. I find a lot of people, they're like, oh, like constantly talking, oh, I wish my life was different, blah, 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 blah. And they're not actually doing anything to make the change. So mm. their views and values are very incongruent with their actual life. And the only way to make it more congruent is by taking a few moderate risks. Yeah. 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 yeah it's interesting is I feel like people think that therapy and or life is all about removing a problem. Yeah. Yeah. When in fact, most of it is about getting good at 
a problem existing mm. and tolerating it mm. or changing, more importantly, changing your relationship to it. Definitely. Uh, and whether that be being able to sit with discomfort, um, increasing your distress tolerance or just not seeing something as a problem anymore. Yes, yes. You know, shifting your perspective. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, and often that comes through sitting in safe containers, i.e. relationships yep. that uh, allow you to accept new parts of yourself or your reality or your situation. Mm. Um, and so it's interesting that what I took from what you just said was that a common theme in people who progress and those that don't are the ones that are willing to sit with discomfort, the yeah. ones that are willing to do things despite yeah. uncomfortable emotions, yeah. knowing that pain doesn't mean something's going wrong. Mm. It means that there's growth mm. and we need to be conscious not to push that too hard so that the muscle tears, but enough yeah. that it can regenerate and build and all exactly. that stuff, right? Exactly. Yeah. That's exactly it. And, and what, what's your biggest learning personally from your lived experience with mental health? from what you've been through? Um, I think the biggest learning for myself is um, compassion for myself, self-compassion really, um, and believing that um, even though I don't know what the outcome will be in things, I know and I now have developed a belief that I will know that I will try my best to make it as good as I can. Mm-hmm. So it's just really believing in myself and not speaking to myself in a negative way. Like I used to, we didn't talk about this, but I used to, because um, there's some social anxiety, of course, all of the anxieties. Yeah, all the, all <laughs> they're the cousins. All, of, they're all cousins, yeah, yeah. exactly. They're all, yeah, very close. Yeah. Um, I remember being like t- tormenting myself and just torturing myself days after I thought I'd said something to somebody and I thought they'd probably think something of me and I'd stay with me for like the week. And when I'd see that person again, I remember one time in particular, I, sincerely apologized for what I'd said and um the person was like what are you talking about (laughs) and it just that threw me and it was like oh my gosh like this whole time I've held this very closely and they didn't even think anything of what you know what had happened so that experience helped me but I think the most important thing is really allowing those thoughts in knowing that they're not they're not me and just being able to let them go. Mm. So just that self-acceptance, uh, compassion. So I don't speak ill about myself to myself anymore. That's good. And that's a big one. It's not. How so did you much. learn how to do that? <laughs> Through a lot of different things. You know, I feel like um, you can learn and get influenced by so many things. A lot of people think like, go to a therapist and then that will help you. Not necessarily. You know, for me, um, I'm very big on like, I love animals. Mm. But can't watch National Geographic because I'm too sensitive to that stuff, the brutality of a watch like this and then have to switch it yeah, off because yeah. it stays with me yeah, wow. for days as well. But anyway, so, but, um, but like animals and nature, like I find grounding myself has been really helpful mm. um, and also reflections, so journaling. Uh, that has been huge for me just to be able to write my thoughts and feelings out in a contained space that I can let go. Totally That's agree. huge. And the other thing for me is uh, music. Music's Mm, huge for me. I think music really helped me be able to... I used to walk to and from uh, the practice in Redfern and there I had music that was quite uplifting to get me ready for the day and then on the way back I had more like nurturing music that I was able to just let all those sad stories just stay there, you know, just to so I didn't have to take them home with me. And your partner is a musician. Yes, music producer, yeah. Has that been helpful for you, like being in that world? 
<laughs> well, it's interesting. Um, I mean, music can really take over, I think. So, like, our whole relationship's been around music. And I felt a bit like, oh, psychology is just, like, taking a back seat. Like, he, isn't, he wasn't as interested in that. Okay. Um, but now he is way more interested in understanding psychology, which is great. So I think we've bonded on both. Great. Sort of with both careers. But, yeah, just knowing that he makes music is it's a big value for me as well totally yeah, yeah it's important what, what a great um alignment in psychology yeah. and music it's yeah. such a, a great um oh. interest to to align on absolutely that being able to express yourself and right. um, write lyrics or poems and then create that sound is just very cathartic i think and healing very cool yeah um, well, thank you so much for spending time here. I, I'm sure many people have got a lot from from this talk. Um, and for me, it's just really refreshing to see someone professional wear their heart on their sleeve. Um, I don't think we have uh, we, we do that enough, is let yeah. the people on the front line actually say, mm. um, I'm not okay too. Yes. You know, it's not just you have to be solemn and stoic and mm. uh, always be uh, put together. Absolutely. So, um, Thank you so much, and um, I hope uh, we can have you back on again soon. Thanks so much, Rich. Cheers. (laughs) 